Well, why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and uh, enliven this text to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, this is such a comforting portion of your word. It is such a profoundly comforting text of scripture. And I pray that we pray together that you would help us to learn how to find hope in the midst of turmoil, fear, depression, despair, anxiety, or whatever emotions that we have come here with this morning. Grant that we would know how to think and how to feel with you in this psalm. Uh, Lord, we long for our lives to be one sweet, beautiful, loving, alleluia to you. We just want to be praised to the Lord. So would you open the preached word to our hearts and stretch this hour into the course of our whole lives. Make this a very precious and special day in the life of your people for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's hard to imagine uh, great men of God like the seemingly or presumably omnicompetent uh, Full of energy, eloquent, brilliant Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, weeping like a baby for no, for some unknown reason. But it happened in 1858 at the age of 24. Spurgeon was 24. It happened the first time. Here's what he said. Spurgeon said, my spirits had sunk so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. Causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet sounds. We would do better to fight with the wind as with this shapeless, indefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. The iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in a gloomy prison requires... A heavenly hand to push it back. Well, feelings of hopelessness, anguish, despair, and desperation are things that, to one degree or another, all of us in this room can identify with. But you know, for some people, uh, such words express how they feel not just once in a while, but as a normal typical daily expression of their existence. They, they live life with a constant sort of low-grade feeling of despair. And of course, people experience hopelessness for different reasons. Um, some just can't, some just live with it for some unknown reason. They can't figure out why. And others may find themselves trapped in a cycle of sin or a cycle of addiction And that's leading to desperation. Others may not feel hopeless, but they suffer from the paralysis of fear and anxiety or the paralysis of worry, just constantly worrying. The American existentialist uh, Irving Yalom once said, there is everywhere anxiety and fear. Now, you don't have to be a Stanford uh, emeritus professor in the psychiatry department to recognize that. You just have to live. That's basic experience of life to know that there is existing everywhere anxiety and fear. Why? 
Well, for one, fear involves the, an unknown reality. It's, it's what's going to happen next. Fear involves the future. We're afraid of the unknown. Something's up ahead, and, and I don't want it. Or it could be that we're afraid of losing people. Will my spouse always love me? Will my kids walk with the Lord, or will they go their own way? Perhaps it's the fear of losing material things. I'm barely able to make ends meet financially. Will I be able to keep my house? Will I have enough? Enough. Other fear, emotional pain. Some, somebody will say, well, hey, I, I, I'm afraid that somebody that's close to me isn't happy with me. They don't want me anymore. I'm a failure, and I'm not happy with myself. I could have. I should have. I would have. I didn't. I'm not. I failed. Well, maybe it's not depression or fear that you struggle with. Perhaps it's anger or envy or worry or loneliness, or maybe it's just a general just lethargy, just dull. We all have different struggles. And what causes these problem emotions or sinful characteristics will vary from person to person. But where we go to for help is the same. You see, there comes a time when all of us must realize that at some point, we need help. Perhaps they really do exist. You know, this, these macho men who never shed a tear, never have a fearful moment in the night. But I, for one, expect that such an image is really a figment of our imagination, and it's not a reality. I mean, the myth of the unconquerable hero, you know, the guy with a spine of steel uh, who pulls himself up by his own bootstraps while he faces the adversity of life. Rambo. It's a myth. It's just that. It's a myth. Well, when we do face adversity, the question this morning is, where do we go for help? Where do we turn? Maybe you remember the words of Benjamin Franklin, who said, God helps those who help themselves. Or perhaps some of us this morning, um, the very idea of asking for help sounds more like desperation. You know, you, you don't want to ask for help. You know that you need help, but you don't like to ask for it. I mean, presumably, that's why self-help books are so popular. I mean, think about it. We like them because we know our need of help, and yet we don't have to expose that need to others. We just can help ourselves. We like help, self-help because it, it panders to our pride. It reinforces the idea that we are the only helper that we really need. And you know what? We're like this from birth. Before a child can even say the words, I'll do it, They rip the spoon out of their mother's hand to sort of messily feed themselves. And it's not that the child wants to help take the load off of mother. (laughs) It's that the child doesn't want to be helped. He wants to do it himself. And yet in those more honest moments, even children recognize their need for help. That same child who a few minutes later falls on the ground will lift his arms in the air and cry for help. We know our need for God's help. In fact, any claim that we are fully able to help ourselves is in fact an echo of the first temptation that human beings faced 
the temptation to think of ourselves as God. It's not that it's, it's the problem that we think that we are the all powerful one, the ultimate resource for life. So where do you turn for help? Or maybe a better question is, where should you turn for help? Well, Psalm chapter 121 helps us with that question. Um, It's a psalm that calls us to look away from ourselves to the one who made us to see that he alone is the one that we need for help. Uh, Just a little context about Psalm 121. Um, You see at the beginning there, it says a psalm of ascents. I don't know if you know what that means, but uh, essentially it means that it was a song that was sung by God's people on the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the great acts of Yahweh on their behalf. All right. So as the pilgrims were approaching Jerusalem, they would sing the song together. And one person in the group, maybe a soloist um, in, in music, if you if you're one who appreciates music, it's called an antiphonal structure. But a soloist or somebody would come and they would sing a song and they would say something like, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And the choir or other people traveling with them would respond, he will not let your feet be moved. And so on and so forth. And or another way to read the psalm, especially now when we read it, is to speak the truth of it to ourselves. So we can say to self, where does my help come from? And then we answer ourselves, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, whether we sing the song to others here in a congregation or whether we turn it into a soliloquy, the point stands. Where can a person find help? Ultimately, I I think that Psalm 121 has a lot to teach us about hope. When we're discouraged, tired, Broken, lost, sick, afraid. How do we find hope in God? I have two points this morning. The first is in verses 1 and 2, and it's this. What does hope require? That is, if we want to be filled with hope, what do we need to do? And then secondly, verses 3 through 8, what does hope rest in? What does hope rest in? So first, how do we find hope? Hope. I, I think this is a crucial question for us because every one of you sitting in the pew right now needs to hope in God. Some of you are going through major sort of trials in your life. We just prayed for Brennan. We just prayed for the gainers. That's a big trial. We have others who have just lost their parents. We have others who are lonely. We have single guys and girls who desperately want to be married. We, we, have, we have lonely Uh, senior citizens we have needs we all need to hope in god so how do we find it how do we become a people of hope even as a church so that the banner that flies over us and the testimony that we preach to others unmistakably says we hope in god when people come here or when people see you is that the testimony do your workmates look at your life and conclude This is a man that lives his life with great hope and confidence in in God, not in himself, but in his God. Can that be said of you? If not, then how do you get there? And if it can be said of you, how can you stay there? Well, I see two ways in verses one and two, and we'll take them one at a time. The first thing is that hope requires 
The first thing hope requires is a lifted head. A lifted head. Verse 1. I, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Now notice the phrase, lift my eyes to the hills. That's a bit enigmatic. Uh, what does it mean? Well, Jerusalem is an elevation of about two and a half thousand feet. And as you would approach the city on your pilgrimage, you would hike through the hills. I know that because I visited Jerusalem this week on Google Earth. (laughs) But for the pilgrim, walking towards Jerusalem, the mountains around the city represented Jerusalem itself. God's city, the place that God had chosen for his earthly dwelling. So to say, I lift my eyes to the hills was the same really as saying, I lift my eyes to God. That is the first thing that hope requires. It's a lifted head. It's a lifted countenance. Now, of course, that's the opposite, clearly, of a downcast soul. And, you know, a person who is downcast has a droopy head. His eyes are usually fixed on his chest on himself and the problems at hand you know it's it's look at me look how difficult my life is the pain that i'm feeling the sickness that i have the sins that i've committed the burden that's just weighing me down and just pushing my head down it's despair it's despondency it's defeat Uh, an immediate and kind of cheap illustration of this is sports I mean, what do players do after they lose the game? Think about it. They bend their head down. They look dejected and defeated. And, and likewise, when the soul places its hope in God, what does it do? It does the opposite. It looks up. It looks up. After the game is won, there's the victory look. We won. We're confident. We are hopeful. We've got a bright existence and future. The head comes up. And there's a confidence there. Think about what what a lifted head represents. Hope, trust, confidence. There's just something about looking up and lifting your head that communicates an inward reality, an inward hope. And that hope, listen, that hope thrives even in the midst of great discouragement and despair. In fact, it's interesting to note that in order to lift your eyes... First, they have to have been lowered. I mean, think about that, friends. It's part of the grace and mercy of God that he allows all kinds of things to happen to us to show our need of him. Stuff happens and and we feel like, oh, this world. Why can't there be any good news on the news, on on the television? Why is there so much pain and suffering? Why does this or that thing have to happen? And why to that person? And actually, the realization of these things, what it does is it it drives us to dependence on God. So that the only thing we can do is, in, in in just discouragement, is lift our eyes to the Lord. And, you know, the first step toward hope is realizing that you need help outside of yourself. Biblical counselors, pastors, even secular counselors talk this way. They'll tell you that. Verse 1 is the first step in this process. It's the most important step to take to, to actually acknowledge that there's something that I need help with and that I have to look beyond myself, beyond my own resources to get it. 
I mean, to say to another person, to say, look, you know, I, I really need help with this or with that. That's a critical step. You see, the idea that I can help myself has, has caused the breakdown of more marriages and the ruin of more businesses and lives than maybe any other idea on the face of the planet. Just pride. I can do this myself. I'm strong enough. I'm big enough. I'm good enough. You know, it's been said that pride is the first victim of failure. But you know what? I think a more accurate assessment would be that pride is the first cause of failure. I mean, after all, the Bible says pride comes before a fall. And we can't do it on our own. We have to first recognize that we are sinful, that we are depraved, that we are weak and helpless. In fact, that you, you have to acknowledge that you are, you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe before you can acknowledge that you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Spurgeon put it like this. He said, the preacher's work is to throw sinners down into utter helplessness so that they may be compelled, compelled, compelled to look up to him who alone can help him. And this morning, um, I want to compel you to look to him who alone can help you. Unless we acknowledge the gospel, everything you do in life will either be driven by fear or pride. The reality is, contrary to Benjamin Franklin, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who look to him for help. Yesterday, uh, as Pastor Sam was praying, Jameis Edwards' sister-in-law was diagnosed, uh, Kelly Beth, uh, with a rare and aggressive form of sarcoma cancer. She's 23 years old, and she's a godly sister in Christ. Um, Kelly Beth Cruz. Anyway, I got on her blog and I, I read what she wrote in response to the news. I just want to share with you her testimonies, what she said. Here's what she said in response to the news. She said, I drowned my pillow in tears. As I lay on my bed, my mother read scripture and covered me in prayer. But the Lord brought this hymn to my heart. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. My father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. And thou hast been with me forever and forever thou will be. Great is thy faithfulness. And then she says, the Lord is faithful to complete the work that he began in his children. Yes, even this tumor has not taken our Lord by surprise. This morning I woke to new hope. Even in the midst of the unknown, the Lord is daily restoring to me the joy of his salvation and granting in me a willing spirit to sustain me. Do we really treasure Christ above all else? Do we really long to be with Christ more than anything? You know, sometimes I wonder if I'm too comfortable on this earth. Have I forgotten where my home is? I pray that my desire above all else would be to bring him glory and honor on this earth as long as he shall have me here. My hope rests in this fact, that the great physician is holding me in the very palm of his hands. Yes, sir, he is. 
I have not, and I will not lose hope. I hope you'll pray for Kelly Beth. Friends, that is a lifted head. That's a lifted head. Praise God. What what does hope require? It requires a lifted head. But secondly, hope requires a God who can really help us. I mean, what good is it to lift your head to someone who can't help you? The question is, who is this God? Can he really help us? Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see, what this psalm is saying fundamentally is that we need help. And if we need help, then we have to look to God for that help. But listen, unless that statement is shored up with some pretty rigorous theology, that, can, that statement can become painfully trite, even damaging. Just trust God, someone might say. And and it feels like a Band-Aid being applied to a hemorrhage. Do you see my life? Do you see what I'm going through? Just trust God? Is that what you're going to say to me? Just trust God. Oh, he'll take care of it. Do you see the wreck of my life? Do you see the ruin? Do you see the pain? Do you see the darkness and the struggle that I'm going through? And you're going to tell me just to trust God? How cheap and superficial And thin, unless there's a theology behind that God. Unless you know something about the God that you're being called to trust in. So to avoid being trite, what does the psalmist do? He does more than tell us to look to God. He tells us things about God. That's because hope requires more than a lifted head. It requires a God who can really help us. Who is God? Verse 2. He is the maker of heaven and earth. Does that sound like someone who can help you? Yes, I think so. This God is the maker of everything. So when someone says to you who's a strong believer, trust in God, they are not being trite. We're talking about the God of the Bible, the very maker of heaven and earth. And that's where we turn. Not to a self-help book. Not to a genie in a bottle, not to a glass of dull my pain whiskey every night, not to a bottle of help me sleep prescription medication, but to God, the rock solid creator of heaven and earth. Friends, only he can help you. When life gets hard, where do you turn? What do you do to feel better? I mean, let's get really practical with this for a minute. What happens, for example, if your marriage starts to go south and relationally and physically it's totally unrewarding? What do you do to cope with the pain? What release valves do you pull? Illicit sex? 30 minutes of pornographic lust in front of the computer? A romantic novel? Getting wrapped up in a totally inappropriate television series? Living a fantasy life on the internet? The refrigerator? Where do you turn for help and release? You know what? Wherever you turn, whatever the answer is, that's what you worship. See, the problem isn't first lust or loneliness or gluttony. Our problem is worship and idolatry. You worship sex. You you worship food. Did you know it's possible to worship food? So when you're sad, what do you do? You eat for comfort. 
And when you're happy, what do you do? You stuff your face and you say it's okay because it's a special occasion. See, the refrigerator isn't the problem. What you worship is the problem. Your stomach has become your God. Sex has become your God. Here's the point. If you worship God, you won't worship sex when the marriage goes south. And if you worship God, you won't worship food when things get tough. Friends, anything that we turn to other than God for help is a God substitute and therefore an idol. And it will wreck your life. Turn to God. Only he can help you. But here's the point. Take heart because he's able to help you. He can really help you. He's the maker of heaven and earth. So we've seen what hope requires. It requires a lifted head and a God who can really help us. But it doesn't it doesn't end there. The psalm gets better. What we see in verses three through eight is a further argument for why God can help us. And so my second point is, what does hope rest in? What what kind of God does our hope rest in? You see, one of the great lessons of this psalm is that God isn't just the God who created heaven and earth. But he's the God who watches over his children. Now, you know, the world might even admit that. The world might even have that view of God, that since he created the world, that somehow he sees his creation, he watches over it. In other words, when God sees us, he sort of looks at us from a distance and and knows who we are, but he may not really be interested in us. He just kind of looks at us from up there. That's not what the psalmist is saying. I'm not talking about that kind of God, remote and distant, who simply just flung the stars into space and and then folded his arms saying, let's just see what happens. Let's just see how it all kind of pans out. No. This is the God who takes intimate, loving interest for his children, in his people, in his church, in you, and in me. Those of you who are fathers and mothers, those of us who have experienced uh, what it's like to stand over your infant children as they sleep. I'm right in the middle of that. Uh, You watched over them and you were sensitive to their needs. It was an expression of of how much you loved them. And, And this experienced believer in the Psalms here who's writing is wanting to encourage us to come further and to experience the watch care of God. He's inviting us to see the watch care of our great and gracious God that we serve. And he says three things about this watch care. Three. These are so comforting. Number one, first, God's care is constant. Verse three and four. He, he's looking after us every minute of every day. What does the text say? Verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. God's care, friends, is constant. He will not let your foot slip. Um, you, You know what it's like to watch your kid play on the playground. He's out there. He's running around. He's climbing on things. And you're constantly keeping your eye on him so that he doesn't get hurt. Or when he's walking across the ice, you help them. Or when an older person is walking across the ice, you help them. You look towards them. You care for them. And so God is watching over us. Who is this God? Verse 4, he's the God who keeps Israel. Uh, He's not 
He's a God who is not only infinite in power, but he's infinite in his tender care and and is able to watch over you and pursue you even when you're running away from him. And he says, the psalmist says, this covenant God, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel never slumbers or sleeps. Now, having said that, sometimes it appears as though God were sleeping, doesn't it? In your life? I mean, honestly, doesn't it appear sometimes as though God is totally asleep to your concerns and your needs? In fact, I mean, there's so many Psalms. We see David, this very emotion coming out of David. He's, he's, it's like David's in an open field sometimes in some of these Psalms. And he says, God, why don't you wake up and see my situation? And, and, and we've done that to the Lord. We've, we've spoken that way to God. We've said to him, don't you care about me, God? But in this psalm, God is speaking back to us. God is speaking back to us, and he is saying to us, he is saying to us, do you think that I'm asleep? Do you think really that I'm slumbering on my job of caring for my people? I never slumber and I never sleep. Praise God. Friends, that's good news for us this morning. God never sleeps. In fact, God doesn't sleep so that you can sleep. John Piper says this in his great meditation in in one of his uh, devotional books. He says, God is a tireless worker. The eagerness of God to work for us is amazing. His eyes are running to and fro, looking for opportunities to work for his people who trust him. With all his heart and all his soul, he works for those who wait for him and trust him. That's your God. And guess what he did last night? God pulled an all-nighter for you. Well, if you're not a Christian, this thought of God never sleeping is hardly comforting. It's not comforting at all, not even remotely comforting. You know why? Because it means God is alert and watching. He sees everything you do. You know, we think we can hide our sin from God. We think the darkness may hide it if we just come out at night when no one else will see. But friend, God does not sleep. You need to hear this this morning. God does not sleep. He does not slumber. He saw everything you ever said and everything you ever did and everything you ever thought. He knows what you're thinking right now. And for some of you, that's a very uncomfortable thought. Some of you have slept in beds that you should not have slept in. Some of you have been looking at things that you should not have been looking at. Some of you have been sending text messages that you should not have been sending. And God wasn't sleeping when that happened, and God isn't sleeping right now. He sees it. God wasn't asleep when you got that girl pregnant. And you gave her no choice but to go and have that abortion. God holds you responsible for that. He doesn't sleep. He didn't sleep when you yelled at your wife or you hit her the other day. And God wasn't sleeping when he prompted you to get out of bed and come to church this morning. And he isn't sleeping right now. He's bringing conviction to some of you. And that's actually a sign of God's love. 
Some of you may feel like you're on the verge of breaking down and crying and repenting of your sin because you know you have sinned against this God. And that's good. I hope you'll do that. It's okay to do that. It's a good time to do that. This is an excellent time to confess your sin to God. It's true that God has seen everything that you've ever done, and it's true that you are terribly guilty. But if you run to Jesus and confess your sin to him, then the God who never sleeps will become the God who always forgives. What will you do with him? Well, second, God's care is close, verses 5 and 6. God's care is close. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Notice the intimacy of the language here. God keeps us. He is close to us. You know, you can hear almost the echo of number six. Anybody know number six? I I, I can hear it sort of resonating right now. The ironic blessing about keeping you. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious, gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. He's looking at you. Now, of course, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so sometimes when God's word says to us, I will keep you, what do our hearts say? Our hearts say, yes, but what about this situation? We're prone to unbelief. But God is reminding us that even though we can't see, he can. God sees. Another word used here is the metaphor of shade. Notice it says, uh, it says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Now, of course, in the Middle East, the sun is scorching. If you spend any time, I, I was in uh, Dubai this last, this last year, and it was so hot. It was November, and it was still just extremely hot. And, and in the Middle East, it's just scorching hot, and the sun is actually dangerous. It can be blinding to your eyes, and the heat can be, can be blistering. So this is really a powerful metaphor of God's protection. But notice that it says the Lord is our shade on your right hand. What's the significance of that on your right hand? Well, in battle, actually, a person who was in battle would carry the shield in his left hand, which means the only unprotected side of a person in battle was his right side. So really the metaphor extends to even in the midst of battle, look, God is your shade. He is near you on your right side. He is your protector, and he is watching over you. The shield was in the left hand. God is on the right hand. And friends, we should take hope that even in the midst of battle, God is on our side. He's our protection. The sun and the moon is a picture at the end there of the verse. He says the sun and the moon of that from start to finish of every passing day, God is with us every minute of that day. The sun and the moon. God is not distant. God is not removed from us. God is intimately involved. God is at our side. He is near us. He is walking with us. He is protecting us. He is looking after us. Is that how you feel about God this morning? Do you feel close to the Lord? Do you realize that God is at your side? Does that thought move you and motivate you? 
Friends, have you not considered God's protecting care of you? Think about his watch care. Think about how he loves you. Think about how he is committed to you, his gentleness, his kindness, his tenderness. Think about how near and close he is to you. Think about how committed he is to you. Every minute of every day, from the start to the finish, God is with you. He's at your side. God's care is close. God's care is constant. And then thirdly, God's care is comprehensive. It's complete. Look at verses 7 and 8. It's comprehensive. There's no what-if moment. There's no moment when God fails to keep his wonderful promise for his people. Think about the impact of these verses. The, the, the psalm concludes with a total promise of complete protection in every way, at all times, in all places, forever. That's almost too good to be true. The Lord will keep you, notice the verses 7 and 8, from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out, your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It can't get any more complete than that. This is comprehensive care. So let me ask you this question. Where does your help come from? Where does your help come from? I hope that your answer is my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Friends, this is the God that cares for us. This is the God that cares for you. Go to him. Anyone in need of hope this morning? You can have it. Hope requires a lifted head, a God who can really help us. So trust him. He can help you. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And his care for you is constant. His care for you is close. And his care for you is comprehensive. If you're a child of God, you're a part of his people And you know what? God has made a promise to you. He has promised to care for you, to look after you, to be a shield for you, to be your helper. God is for you. But have you ever wondered why it is that God is so radically for us? Or how can it be that God is so passionately for us? How is that possible? Why would the God of the universe, why would the maker of heaven and earth, why would the God who spoke the world into existence with the word of his power, why would he even give a rip about us? Why does he care for you this morning? Why is he at your side? Why is he your shield? Why is he your protector? Why is he for you? Why is he loving you? Why is he gracious to you? Why is he near you? How how can this happen? Friends, listen, he is for you because he was against his son at a specific time in history. Listen, Jesus did not experience a shield protecting him. There was no shade at the right hand of Jesus. Jesus was not free from harm. God's anger fell upon him. And he was counted As an enemy by his father to the extent that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Harm came to Jesus. He was not kept from harm. In fact, he was in harm's way. 
You are not in harm's way because Jesus was. God crushed him. Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten by God and afflicted. That word strike is the same word found in verse 6 in Psalm 121. Same word, he was stricken for us. The sun will not strike you because God struck the sun. We experience protection because, Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his stripes, we are healed. Friends, we all like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why God is for you. That's why God is for you in all situations and in all circumstances for the rest of your life. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow forever. It's his promise to you and he sealed it with his blood. Hope in God. Lift your eyes to the hills. See where your help comes from. Your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Will you take hope this week? If you're a Christian, you have no reason not to hope. You have every reason to hope. My dear brother and sister in Christ, you please God when you take hope in him. If you don't hope in him, you displease him. He's done everything for you. So lift your droopy head and take hope. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for your consoling, sweet, Loving, gentle, kind, hopeful word to us this morning. Oh God, work this deep into us so that our heads will lift, our eyes will lift to the maker. And we will take fresh courage. The week ahead of us, for the months ahead of us, for the darkness that we're going through, for the year in front of us, for the rest of our life, may we be people who powerfully hope in God. In Jesus' name.